Welcome to the UALC podcast. This is Andrea Taphorn, and I'm here with my partner, Brody Taphorn. And today we are starting a conversation, and this is a long conversation. It's a three-part conversation that we are having um, on racial justice and the church. And I read a quote the other day that I think really frames the beginning of this conversation well, and it says this. It says, we are experiencing a divine reckoning in America. And I don't think that reckoning is over having simply sinned. It's over the fact that we have used God and the Bible to do it. And this quote just stopped me in my tracks because I felt its truth just wash over me and convict me. As somebody who loves and labors in the church, and I love God and I love sharing the truth of the Bible with others. I am struck by the gaping chasm between the vision of God for humanity and for his church and what our world looks like today. So let's listen in. We're, we're starting a, a long conversation, and uh, we've got a lot of listening to do and a lot of learning. Pastor Steve Turnbull and Mindy Erdman are our conversation partners. And I want to say up front that we are four white people having a conversation about race. And as white people, we have a lot of listening and work to do on this issue, particularly here at UALC, where we are a predominantly white community. Uh, we need to be talking to each other about this so that we can labor better and well with our brothers and sisters in Christ, um, who are people of color and and really for our our communities and for our nation. So let's start this conversation today. Well, I have been looking with anticipation to having this conversation. I'm here with Andrea, uh, Steve Turnbull, our senior pastor, and Mindy Erdman. And we are going to have a conversation today about racism, about racial injustices, uh, about what it means to be a Christian uh, in, in, in light of the times that we find ourselves in now. And so, Mindy, I'd like you to introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for this conversation. It's important in this moment. Um, so I grew up in Appalachian section of Southeast Ohio and my family roots are there back generations. Um, so growing up, uh, I had the privilege, my, my dad was in the Marines. I moved around a bit. We got exposed to some diversity through that, but most of my family experience was in a very white you know, Southeast Ohio um, in fact, my grandparent, my great grandparents were in the KKK, and we have some, like a set of dishes that are that have the KKK logo on them mm -hmm. and things like that. So that, those are sort of my roots. But my, um, I became a Christian just before going to college. Got involved with InterVarsity at the College of Worcester, um, where I met Steve and. I had the privilege, again, of having uh, having opportunities and experiences to understand issues like poverty and racism and to learn from people who were working in those areas. Um, one, one significant moment, I was doing a, a spring break program in, in Cleveland my first year, and I 
went in with the attitude of, you know, we're mostly, it was all of us were white at the time, the students going into this project and we were going into the inner city. We were going to help. We were going to bring Jesus into the city. But I met this homeless man uh, through one of our tours who just loved Jesus so clearly and was, had so much joy. Um, I had been a Christian just about a year and I had not yet seen anybody who had such a love of Jesus um, until I met this, this homeless man who was recovering um, addict. And I realized that the city didn't need me to be there. I needed to be there to learn who God was. Um, and I've had several other moments in my life. I, I participated in something called a pilgrimage for reconciliation in 2003, where a very diverse group of, of staff from university went from Atlanta, Georgia, following the trail at Cherokee Trail of Tears, um, being led by a Cherokee theologian, mm. Randy Woodley, um, and learned about how the church had brought Shalom and how the church had broken Shalom throughout that part of our history. And then we went from, so from Atlanta to Oklahoma City, and then on the way back, we studied the civil rights era and asked the same question about the African-American experience um, in that history. How, how has the church participated in bringing Shalom or in breaking Shalom? So having that experience, learning a lot of history I had never heard before and doing that in the context of a very diverse community was life-changing. Um, and I, I probably a week has not gone by since then that I haven't thought of that time. Um, Oh. Yeah. So, Steve, I know that this is an issue that is particularly important to you as well, and you were the one that introduced us to Mindy. So why don't you say a word about how you got interested in this topic, and then maybe you could say a word about how you met Mindy in college. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm going to take that in reverse order, actually. Uh, <laughs> I, this is so fun for me to be here, uh, seeing my old friend Mindy again. We were friends in an intervarsity chapter at the College of Worcester. Um, I don't want to say how many years ago, uh, but it was a while ago, and uh, th those are great memories. And I didn't really even, although I knew it, I, I don't think I connected it quite the same way, Mindy, until you were just talking about being from Southeast Ohio. And, and I think it's since I moved uh, here to Columbus a couple of years ago and back to Ohio uh, that I've thought more about my ancestral home, my, my grandfather and his generations are from uh, Shawnee, Ohio. They were coal and clay miners uh, in that area. And we have, uh, I wonder uh, if some of the, some of the roots of our families knew each other uh, at some point back there, mm -hmm. but fun to see you uh, again and reconnect. Mindy and I have kept in touch a little bit since college. I've uh, stayed familiar with her ministry uh, in the city in Cleveland uh, and great to be back together again. As for my interest in this topic and suggestion that we all have this conversation, I, I think I come to it uh, maybe from two ways. Uh, one, I grew up in the city of Cleveland, uh, maybe had a little bit more background uh, with some cultural and racial diversity than, although I went to a Christian school and high school uh, in a suburb of Cleveland and less diversity there, a little bit more where I grew up. But I think really uh, this came to me through, through international travel, lived around the world a little bit, um, sometimes doing some Christian work and study abroad trips, so just kind of getting exposed to cultural diversity. Uh, and then mostly from the Bible itself, just from reading, especially the New Testament, but from the New Testament back into the Old Testament, just being struck by how important it was for the journey of the gospel to cross cultures and to unite people who looked different from one another and came from different places and would have recognized one another as being different from each other uh, in a human perspective. 
and seeing what a, just a revolutionary thing the gospel did and how generative that was for most of the documents we have in the New Testament now. That just kind of, when, when I started to notice that, it grabbed my attention, and I don't know that I'll ever be able to really stop thinking about that. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so first, Mindy, you also are getting ready to do some studying. Tell us a little bit about that and how the Bible has captured you in this particular topic of racial injustice. Yeah, I... Um, shortly after becoming a Christian, I, I still remember um, this moment where I fell in love with the Bible. I, it was a youth group trip. Um, we were driving several hours in, in the back of a van and we decided to study Revelation because we were teenagers and we wanted to pick the weirdest book in the Bible. Um, but I, I remember just a bunch of kids. We didn't have a leader, no adults, just sort of reading this and trying to figure out what it meant. And I had just gotten a new Bible Um a study Bible. So it had all the cross references and the notes. And I, I remember being fascinated that this book at the end of the Bible that I had just knew vaguely knew about that it was weird. Um, but that it had so much connection to the whole rest of the story of the Bible. Um, so I, I was, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know how does this connect to Genesis or to um, the gospels and, um, so I, through InterVarsity, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship has a strong value of biblical literacy and helping people study the Bible. So I had a lot of opportunity to learn how to study and then eventually came on staff with InterVarsity and was teaching others how to study or how to lead Bible study. Um, so my, my love of the Bible and my call or my, my heart towards justice kind of developed parallel alongside each other from the very beginning of my Christian walk. Um, and as I continued that journey, saw the, those things interacting and inter, interweaving with each other. So I um, I was working for InterVarsity up until a year ago and my, my role when I left was scripture engagement and racial justice specialist. So I was helping people engage with the Bible and I was helping multi-ethnic communities with InterVarsity um, understand why race is so central to the gospel or why, understanding why this conversation is so important at, at, for our witness as Christians. Um, and I, as I was doing that work and just loving that work, seeing a need for it, um, seeing, I think because of this, the racial climate in the last 10 years or so, um, a lot of people who hadn't been thinking about it before were, were more open to it. Uh, I've, I really started feeling compelled to do this for the church. Um, at, at large rather than just college students. So I applied to Duke Divinity School to get a Master's of Divinity and I just finished my first year there. Um, I'm, it's been a wonderful experience and I'm, I've learned a lot more about the history, about the theology behind what's happening in our world today. Um, also recognizing that the systemic nature of racism you know, impacts even, there are some serious things happening at Duke that, that have been going on that we're, we're struggling with to, to um, just identify and, and move forward in some of the racism we're, we're seeing there. So I'm finding this work is needed everywhere. And uh, I'm, this current moment, it's, again, it, it, there's just been so much interest and, and a need for white Christians, especially to engage with this because our, our church and our theology has not equipped us um, as white people in general to handle this issue. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure what my role, what will happen when I'm done. I, I 
would love to do training or um, teaching, Bible study, preaching. I All of this is for me is included in my love for scripture. And this is where the foundation it comes from is understanding scripture in new ways. Can I, can I ask you something that you said last time you and I talked, we were talking about how this is a major biblical issue, not just kind of a social issue, but a, a Christian biblical issue. And then the next thing that you said after that was you began explaining how the um, message of the gospel applies uh, to, to this world, to our present life. To, and I think I had forgotten about that blind spot. But uh, could you say, if that's okay with uh, our hosts here, mm-hmm. uh, if you could maybe uh, say a little bit about that. I think that's helpful for people to understand. Sure. Yeah, something I've learned um, through a lot of my experiences is that for certain segments of the church, the idea of salvation is uh, a something something that will happen in the future, and we will experience it in some other place. Um, it's it's for when we die, we're saved from our sins, we're saved from hell. Um, and I've I found that for a lot of evangelical Christians, especially white Christians who who often have a privilege to not experience the pain and suffering that some of our brothers and sisters experience, that idea that salvation is something that we're we experience later rather than now um, means people are sort of stuck with, okay, so I tell people about Jesus. I live my life. I ask Jesus for help, um, you know, in my personal life, but there's, there's not a sense of the ways in which salvation, which, you know, Jesus says eternal life is to know God, um, to have this intimate knowledge of God. And we have that now we start that now. So our eternal life, is happening now. Um, and God is at work right now, redeeming all of his creation. So it, we, we can join with him in that. Um, we have a, a work to do. We don't know how much of it is God and how much is us, but we know he's invited us to partner with him now to experience the eternal life of knowing God and to, um, partner with him to restore everything that was broken because of sin. I know I personally have been on a journey trying to understand that. And I can actually remember, speaking of us being friends in college, I remember like being in a Bible study and thinking through, like, why, why would the present matter? Like, if, if the future is infinite and God is preparing us for this, uh, some Christians will say, live for the line, not for the dot, you know, and the, what happens in the dot in the present doesn't really mm-hmm. matter. Uh, and I can almost talk myself into that until I start reading the Bible again. <laughs> and then I see Jesus That's the problem. saying that the kingdom of God has come near, like here in this present world. And he teaches us to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there's, it seems to me, evidence, and you know, we could talk about some of this, maybe it'd be helpful, all over the Bible of that. And I think one thing that occurred, occurred to me somewhere along the way is, I think we all get get this at some level, even when we can't get it into the rest of our brains, there's a part of our theology, there's a part of our faith that gets this. You know, we just pick which parts of Christian life we think are going to be transformed in the present. Like, we, I, think, I don't think there are any Christians who are like, yeah, I mean, it's, the gospel and the Bible don't really change, like, adultery. You know, like, it's fine, we should just, you know, nobody thinks that about the present, but then we do think that about issues that sometimes get labeled uh, justice or poverty issues. Like, oh, well, those are not for now. God will fix all that later but he will fix other things now. And so there's this like disconnect in some of our heads. And I think that disconnect has been in my head. And um, yeah, I'm glad to hear you speak to that. Thank you. Right. And I think there are, what I've learned, um, what's really been articulated for me through seminary so far is the deep theological roots behind those, those assumptions or those ideas that um, 
our theology in the West has been deeply impacted by um, concepts of white supremacy and um, that I, I think it might be hard to see, but um, looking at some of the research that's been done and some of what's been written about the history, part of the reason our theology coming down to us now says that salvation is for some later time and now it's not, now doesn't matter that much. That was how slavery was justified. Um, that was, that theology was almost invented as a way of, of allowing European people to enslave others. Um, we, it's okay for us to do this now because it's part of the, God's created order and we've given them eternal life, um, but freedom now isn't what this is really about. Um, so it, it's, I don't, this is one of the reasons I wanted to go to seminary. There's some deep theology that needs to be mm -hmm. done and needs to be rethought. Um, and people are doing this work and most of them are people of color, theologians of color who are doing this, this important deep work. Um, yeah, there's a lot. I think I, I could be wrong about this, but I think that's the origin of the phrase "pie in the sky," that um, that white slave masters could say to their slaves, uh, "Don't worry, there'll be pie in the sky." Like not now, but but later. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's right or not, but I think I think I've learned that. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. It sounds mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Mindy, I'm I'm curious as to uh, it, this isn't just a theological issue. The earliest Christians, first century Christians, dealt with issues of um, different ethnicities. Um, I wonder if you want to speak to something specifically in the scriptures, for instance, that the issue of the Hellenistic Jews, um, what can we learn from the way that the first Christians dealt with these first racial issues? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As in general, as white people, we are conditioned to see the world through a lens that our lens is normal. Our lens is the 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 best or the right one, or just that there's it's just the way things are. How we see things is the way things are, and we're trained also to not think about or talk about race for the most part. I think that's changing with younger generations, but um, so we don't when we approach scripture, then we don't see the racial and ethnic conflict that's there because we we just are blind to it. We've been kind of brought up that way. So you mentioned X6 and the Hellenistic Jews, and there was, you know, this ethnic conflict between the Hebraic Jews who were probably um, Jews who had lived in or, and around Jerusalem their whole lives. They had that culture and language and then Hellenistic Jews who probably were, um, they had been spread out around the empire and they had, um, especially a lot of times when, when a, a, a man would die, his widow would move back to Jerusalem or people would kind of retire back to Jerusalem. Um, so they had a different language, different cultural customs and things like that, but we don't, we don't see that when we're looking at that. Um, so the, that, I love that story as a way of teaching us how we as a church can deal with ethnic conflict. They first, the, the, the marginalized group, the Hellenistic Jews, spoke up to the church leaders who were not Hellenistic Jews and said, our widows, the most vulnerable in our society are being overlooked. Um, and rather than say, oh, I'm sure you're imagining it, or how do you know it's because they're, you're, you're Hellenistic? It, it, they took it seriously. They said, okay, we need to bring the community together and do something about this. And then they invited leadership from that marginalized community. All of the people that were chosen to oversee this problem were from the marginalized community. 
which again is not like we often think it has to be, um, well, why didn't they put an equal number of Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews on the they, they knew that the ones being most impacted by this uh, marginalization were the ones who would know how to handle it the best. Hmm. But this is a decision that the entire community made and then the whole community laid hands and, and commissioned them and sort of said, we, we respect your leadership. We, we will follow you. We will follow your lead here. Um, and I, that's what I've heard many, many of my brothers and sisters of color saying for years is um, we know what's happening. We, we see this issue and the, the white church has not had that same sense of we will listen to you. We will follow your lead. Um, and in, in this moment, I feel like that's needed. Um, there, are, I, I just, I, I love scripture so much because I think sometimes we forget it's the living and active word of God. It's not written in stone where it, it meant this and it means this thing. And it is always for all time going to say this to us, but it speaks to us in our present moment. And even recently I was looking at Luke 18 and the persistent widow and noticing that the focus is really on justice in that passage. It's not just on prayer. It's on a, a, a vulnerable person seeking justice. And the judge is recognizing some things about this, that if I don't give her justice, she might attack me like this. I, seeing that in light of current events was just eye-opening that this judge knew denying her justice, you know, he could pretend to not hear her, but she was going to keep bothering him until he could not pretend anymore. And Jesus ends that parable by saying, but when the son of man comes, will he find faith in the earth? And I think we've often just thought we're, we should be praying for things we want. Like we should just keep praying because God gives all good gifts. And if we want something, keep praying until God gives it to us. And so when he asks that question, we picture, is he going to find a bunch of people on their knees praying? But looking at that passage in a different light, I think he's saying, well, I find faith on the earth where the weak and the poor and the vulnerable are getting justice. Or am I going to find this where there's people in power who are not just, who are continually refusing to give justice? Um, or will there be a just world where um, this isn't happening? So it's, we forget the Bible's living and active. We forget that our one, our lens is not the only one. It's, um, we need one another. We need community to understand what scripture is saying to us. And so if we're not listening to other voices who have a different lens, we're missing so much of what scripture has to show us. I wonder if we could connect a couple of things in that passage. Uh, Jesus uh, the, the passage saying that this parable means that we should always pray and not give up, I think is, is what it says. But then the whole illustration is an example that you just ex- comes from the world that you just explained of somebody who's vulnerable, crying out for justice to somebody who has power, like do something about this, stand up to your obligations, you know, do what you're supposed to do. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder if we could even just connect those two threads that when Jesus teaches that we should have prayer and not give up, um, that that doesn't mean that like if you really want a brand new car, you should just really pray for a car as hard as you can and not give up on that. Uh, but that the kind of prayers that Christians, followers of Jesus, are going to pray, and we can pray for any of our needs, but that um, central in our prayer life, the assumption is that central in our prayer life is going to be crying out for the kingdom of God, for righteousness. Which in the same, in the biblical language, in the Greek language, righteousness and justice—that's just the same word. We just choose to translate it differently in different contexts. That we'd be crying out for the kingdom, uh, for God to do for the God of all the earth to do right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I think that's such an important, can we talk a little bit about even just from um, beginning to end, 
like just a narrative of who God is and how he recreates humans and even redefines family. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a profound discussion that really impacts us in ways that I think we need to get more, uh, realize more as a, a white community. Yes. Yes. I, I, I'm considering going on for a THD later and I've already started a list of possible dissertation topics and comparing Paul's idea and Jesus's idea of family with white evangelicalism's idea of family is one of my potential topics. I, I'm fascinated in that. Um, but so that this is another thing I learned through, through university and through my um, just the wonderful experiences I had of learning scripture through them that, you know, the Bible starts with Genesis one and, and God creating this amazingly abundant, beautiful, diverse world. It, there's a lot of care taken in the writing of that, um, you know, the, the images of, of um, things bursting forth with life and all of the different kinds of things, you know, being fruitful and multiplying and um, God's breath, you know, the breath of God being the life-giving force that God breathes not only into human beings, but into animals also. There's, um, we're, we, we are sort of the pinnacle of creation in a way, but God's love and effort and breath went into all of this creation. Um, and I think we sometimes forget that. We start with maybe Genesis 3 with the fall and sin and forget that God had created this beautiful, abundant, diverse world that worked together in harmony. And the the whole thread of scripture is showing how God is choosing to redeem the brokenness that came in Genesis 3, to restore back that sense of the garden. But the one thing I remember learning on my first urban plunge with with InterVarsity in Cleveland was that creation starts in a garden but ends in a city. And what does that say that in Revelation we see this city? Um, you know, what's different about that is that cities are people living in close proximity to one another. They're, it's a place where you can't, you can't have your nice little privacy fence and like have your own little space. It's, you're, you're there together, but also there's creativity happening. There's architecture and art. Like cities are the places where culture and economics and education, like that's where they're all centered. So it's a different picture of this abundance because it's the, the garden is God's, you know, God creating and bringing this to being. And then the city in revelation is the partnering between God and, and people to bring this creativity and flourishing and creation. And the whole story of scripture is us getting to that point, that partnering with God. Um, so he chooses a family with Abraham. He doesn't, he chooses Abraham, but he says, your family is going to be the, the ones to show the world who I am and what I'm like. Um, that is something I think we miss. That's so significant that it was not individuals that God said, you, you as an individual go out and tell the world about me. It was, I love you as my, as this family, this community, your job is to show other people who I am and what I'm like. They failed again and again and again. And eventually Jesus comes and also institutes family, like creates this new family of, you know, my brother and mother and sisters or whoever does the will of God. There's this sense of belonging, um, being gathered into this amazing community and family. And again, this partnership of restoring this abundant, beautiful, diverse creation. 
Um, there's so much of that that I think when we look through our Western worldview, um, we miss because we look at things through a lens of individualism and hierarchy and um, compartmentalizing, like we, we separate out different parts of our lives and our world. And th these are some of the things I've been, my eyes have been open to because of how much I've learned from people of color, um, Native American, African American, Asian American, Latino, um, people internationally, it's, it's, we need each other. <laughs> if I could answer Andrea's question for a second about family, I think that that's like, and, and Mindy was keying in on this too, a super important insight into the thought world of the Bible, both Old Testament and New, and Mindy quoted what Jesus said, and Paul is seems to be pervasive in his thought. It was pointed out to me once that of all the terms that Paul uses to identify Christians, uh, the word Christian is almost never used. I think I think not used by Paul ever, just in the book of Acts, I think. Um, uh, but then there are other words like believer and saint and the things like that, but, but the single most common word that is used to refer to the people in Paul's churches in Paul's letters is the word that we translate as brother or brothers and brother and sister. Uh, that I think that tells us something about how um, how pervasive was his sense that we were members of the family of God. We were we are all brothers and sisters of the firstborn who was Jesus, <laughs> and all therefore become inheritors. We're all heirs of God, all children of God. And there's and there's teeth in that insight. It's not just a warm fuzzy. Uh, it means that we have bonds with one another and obligations to one another, joy and permanence with one another. And the, the Roman Empire in which Paul was doing his ministry also, to a large extent, thought of itself as one big family. The emperor was the father. He was the head of the whole Roman household, and everybody took their places of hierarchy underneath the empire. And I mean, it was, I'm probably pushing a little bit beyond here, but it was like a giant multi-level marketing thing. Everybody existed, mm -hmm. right, for the benefit of the one on top. Um, and the family that Paul announced uh, as the apostle to the Gentiles that he announced in Jesus and, and created by means of the gospel and the power of the Spirit all across the Mediterranean world operated at total cross-purposes to this. Uh, it tore down those systems of power. Uh, it put people together in, in different relationships that didn't depend on their service of the emperor or their ethnicity, like that they were conquered by Rome, but they were really Asians or Gauls or Parthians or something like that. Um, and in the Christian family, they, that's what they became. They became part of the Christian family. Uh, and I think that there's, um, it's, a, it's a counter model. It, it undermines the cultural vision that everybody thought was a normal way, the, the taken-for-granted way of doing things. This was totally different than that. And not only was it, I think, a threat in that way, uh, it was a revolutionary idea that Jesus and his gospel uh, brought into the world, but it also invited people to transfer out of one family into another, from one kind of dominance structure into service to the Lord Jesus who gave his life for us. And that, I think, is why, or that's, that's at least a big part of how Christians got themselves persecuted, <laughs> because they thought the world should operate differently, and that people should follow Jesus, and that peace and salvation and freedom were in him. Those are all the words that the emperor was supposed to provide, but now King Jesus provides those instead. That's what I think is so remarkable about uh, just how Christianity made it out of the first century, how Christianity made it out of this group of Jewish mm -hmm. uh, believers who uh, eventually embraced people from other ethnicities. That's why when we look at Ephesians chapter 2 and Paul says uh, that 
God has made the two groups one. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, here, this group of Jewish people, a marginalized people, a conquered people, people who have been under the thumbs of uh, Romans and Greeks and Persians and Babylonians. And I mean, yeah. and, and, and perhaps they might have thought, well, at least we're not like this other group of people who is also a marginalized people. But Paul tells the Ephesians, like, it's not like that way. It's not like that anymore. You know, the dividing wall of hostility that has separated us uh, is gone. And now we are one. That that had to have been a completely revolutionary. How Christianity made it beyond our own racial instincts uh, is testimony to the power of God. As explosive. I think that, that passage, it goes from about the, well, it goes all throughout Ephesians, but from about the middle of chapter 2 to about the middle of chapter 3, I sometimes wish we could just pull the chapter numbers out because they make it look like the thought breaks when it doesn't really, but um, it, that passage comes to a head around Ephesians 3.10, and it says that uh, in, this, in, in Paul's gospel and his explanation of the gospel, his administration of this mystery, that the, the manifold power of God would be made known, uh, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, that, that God putting humanity back together over the sinful divisions that we've reinforced is a testimony to the power of evil of the wisdom and power of God. That like mm-hmm. that sort of God like planting his flag in the ground and going, I have, I have reclaimed my creation. I have triumphed over evil. And we in the church get to experience a foretaste of the vision that Revelation gives of every tribe and language and people coming together as one. I think Paul's theology is the church is the beginning of that. It's like the, it's the invasion of that victory into the present world before the whole war has been won. And that's good news. Amen. I know. And it's the, this is, there's so much there that I am thinking I'd love to say, but we have, by we, I think, I think I mean, Western white evangelical Christians have made the good news um, about a set of beliefs that you, you become a Christian by agreeing to a certain set of beliefs that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. And I am a sinner and I need to be forgiven. And Willie Jennings is a, he used to teach at Duke and he's um, now at Yale and he has an amazing book called um, The Christian Imagination. And this is where I saw this articulated so well that the, the Christian, becoming a Christian means becoming part of a family more than it does believing a certain set of doctrines. And I, I know Christians can get like evangelicals can get kind of uncomfortable with that. Like, but you have to believe the right things, but that's, that's not what you see in the Bible. Primarily, you are becoming a part of a community. And we're, we've missed that um, so much. And, and the, that passage, Steve, about um, we're proclaiming to the powers and authorities in the air, like our, our Christian unit, the unity of the church, loving one another and working across those lines is what destroys the principalities and powers of evil that exist as systemic racism or or white supremacy or violence or all of these things that we, um, we see destroying, you know, our, our world and our country, the church's unity and the church's work in this is what has power against those forces of, of evil. Um, and I, again, I feel like we've missed that, but we're at a critical moment right now where that is becoming so more, much more clear to so many of us. Well, thanks for listening with us today, and um, 
we have a lot more to discuss. I hope you come back next week and tune in as we continue this conversation on racial justice and the church. Thanks to Steve Gill, our sound engineer, and thank you so much for listening in. We'll see you next week.